um, as Ben said, yeah, I am pretty nervous. When he asked me to do my testimony, I at first felt I can't do that. But then I remembered what has happened to me this year, where I have come this year, I can do anything. So, we'll start. My name is Helen. I am a mother, a grandmother, and a great-grandmother. And I love the great bit. <laughs> it makes me feel real good. Um, I have 11 grandchildren and four great-grandchildren. And my journey starts when I was a child. And I have to tell you a little bit about my childhood for you to understand how relevant this year has been. Sorry. Um, I, uh, can I just say a bit of a prayer first because I think I need his help. I pray that the Lord is with us all today and hears our prayers, that he moves with us all to help us, to heal us, to open our eyes so we didn't, don't miss any of the gifts and find peace and love to all our fellow men. Now, the reason this is a bit important, most of you know Pastor Ben's story of his father or the lack of and of his mother who raised him with such strength and his children. You've done a beautiful job, Nonna. My story starts with my father. Unlike Ben's father, I lived with mine, but many a day I wished he wasn't there. And as a result of that, I was left with many scars, many I didn't trust, I didn't believe. But on the other part of my scale, I had a mother. She was one who taught me that there was a God. Although she rarely went to church, she would read the Bible to us on Sundays. But there was one thing she always maintained in her life. She used to say, if you haven't got Christianity in your heart and in your home, church won't make a difference. So that was my introduction to the Lord. And thank heavens, without that little bit of an introduction, I wouldn't be here today. And I can tell you that quite clearly. <coughs> I used to believe that there was a God, but never really understood who God is. I loved him in my mind and believed he was there for me, but when you've been wounded and hurt by the one person who is supposed to love and protect you, it's truly hard to let go of your doubts and your guilt and open the door and truly let someone in. How can God truly love me when he knows my past? There was like a divider between us until after I read a book that a friend lent to me. 
This book is The Pearl of Great Price. She said, read it, it might make a difference. So I picked the book up and I read. Now, it's, after I read the book, the friend lent me, and I realised that the divider between God and me was one I'd created. So after I read it, and there, there was a part in it that was mentioned, Corinthians 6, 18, I will be your father to you and you shall be my daughter, says the Lord Almighty. What I'm saying is that I realised while reading the chapter in this book, I came to a light bulb moment. Yoo-hoo! That doesn't happen very often. That I have always had a father who has been there for me. I cried for hours. Like I was releasing all the regrets, the missed years, the doubts, the anger, the uncertainty just flowed out of me as he filled every inch of me, never to be alone again. And for the first time in my life, I felt whole. That same week, Pastor Ben spoke of his journey. The realising of who God the Father was to him, and of course, I cried all over again. So between the people in this church and the open arms I have been welcomed with, I know he led me here for a reason. And that reason is so I could finally know and love him as a true daughter would. I'm not perfect, and he certainly knows that, but he loves me anyway. As I love you all, I know that I will still have bad times, but he's always going to be there for me. As Jeremiah 3.19, I look forward to you calling me father. I have never felt this way before. If any of you have a doubt, try and put it aside and open that door and let him in because he's the man. (laughs) And before I leave today, one thing my mother taught me a long time ago is never shut your door to someone who may need you. So Christmas Day, if there's anybody here who has no one to share Christmas with, you are most welcome at my door. Thank you. We're going to pray for Helen. It's an amazing testimony to discover that God's your dad and uh, it's really special that she would share that with us. So why don't we all stand to our feet. I want to ask Emily, would you mind praying for Helen, leading us in prayer for Helen? That would be great.
Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've brought Helen back to you, Lord. We thank you that you've brought her to our church, Lord. She's been such a blessing to us this year and to so many people. And we thank you for all she, you've done in her life. We pray you continue to bless her, bless her, her home, bless her family, bless her grandchildren and her great-grandchildren. And I pray that you just use Helen to be such a light for everyone around her as time goes on. We thank you for her heart. We thank you for her generous spirit. And we pray your blessings, Lord, in every aspect of her life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Yeah, give Helen a big clap. Helen's one of those amazing grandparents that look is the carer of a grand couple of her grandkids. Richard, you saw him up here, and Thomas, and uh, she's such a blessing. And you know, when she said invited people who are not got anywhere to go for Christmas, she's genuine about that. She honestly, her door is open. If there are people here that you don't have anyone to share Christmas with, talk to Helen, because she would love to have you in her place. It's awesome. It's wonderful. Uh, I forgot to mention that there are kids' packs for the kids today. Um, if you haven't got one yet, they're just up on the baptism font there. Uh, feel free to grab one. But we've got Benito coming to share with us today a Christmas message. So why don't you put your hands together for him as he comes. Sweet. Let's bow our heads and pray. Thank you, God, for today. Thank you that you're here with us. Thank you that we can celebrate Christmas uh, another year, God. Thank you that we can remember that it's a Christmas can be a promise of, of what you've done for us and what, what is to come, Lord. I pray that you guide my words. You, you give me the, you, you go before me and, and the words come out easy because they're your words, God. I just pray that you use today and, and that uh, you see everyone here, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. So uh, I've been tasked with the privilege of a Christmas message, and I'm going to enjoy sharing it. Um, Christmas is the time of year for many. You can generally pick these people out because they would have told you three times over. For these many, it's a great time full of reuniting family, rest, good food, good company, and a chance to take a collective breath over the final week of the year. For others... Christmas is a struggle. The pile-up of meals to cook, the grey hair inducing conversations, the financial burden it carries. Just as Christmas is the time of year of many family reunions, plenty of family fallouts have also stemmed from a nightmare Christmas. For others, Christmas is downright terrible. Perhaps it's because it's your first December 25 without a loved one, or, or it's a yearly reminder of brokenness in your family. Maybe you're one of the many who don't have someone to celebrate Christmas with. I'm fully aware that in my position, I can never fully empathize with those who find Christmas difficult to bear. But I know that in the Bible, there is hope for everybody, that there is life after death, restoration after decay, peace after pain. And this hope is found in a manger. Um, when I think of Christmas, probably like many of us, I think of hope. Hope... Um, and it's on a slide as well, is described in the amplified version of Ephesians. Uh, hope is the divine guarantee, the confident expectation 
of what God has promised. Um, you will see it up there eventually. They'll figure it out. Um, but the divine guarantee, the confident expectation of what God has promised. Inherent to the birth of Jesus, and you heard it a bit in the Nativity, which pretty much just like laid out the foundation for me to speak. <laughs> um, inherent to the birth of Jesus is the realisation of a hope held on to for centuries. To fully understand the ground-shifting ramifications of this hope requires us to go back to the beginning. God's perfect creation, perfect relationships between God and humans, humans and self, humans to each other, and humans in creation, relationships in balance, and no faults in, in any of these four types of relationships. The fall broke this. The rebellion, Adam and Eve's first sin, the eating of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, God's good creation marred and defaced by the entrance of sin into the world and the terrible consequences that came with this. Those four types of relationships now distorted and broken. The entrance of pain and death, the struggles that followed in the Bible and today. The entire narrative of the Bible from that point onwards was and is God's mission to restore the damage of human sin, to restore the relationships distorted by human sin. Humans to themselves, humans to others, God and humans and God and creation. He wants to restore these relationships. He wants to bring it all back together. And God promises this again and again in the Old Testament and the New Testament. But specifically, we see it in the story of Noah, where God makes a covenant with all life on earth, never, never to destroy it by flood again. We see it in the story of Abraham, where God promises blessing in relationship to him and his descendants, the Israelites. We see it in Moses, where God rescues his people from the clutches of Egyptians and establishes a new special relationship with his people. They get an Ark of the Covenant, land, laws to follow, which in themselves were an effort to imagine what life could be like if lived in harmony, if lived in peace. So again and again, God comes alongside his people. In fact, he's always alongside his people. He never leaves, but we do. They, they did. We stuff up. The, in the Old Testament, humans stuffed up. Noah built an ark in faithfulness, but he's also responsible for the first case of incest. Abraham sins, so too does Moses and those that follow on. The world continues to live in chaos. But there's a hope that the Israelites continue to hold on to. And then we get to an interesting point where David comes along. We've heard a lot about David lately in messages from, past, from Dad and, and, and others. Um, David was a man who made some really terrible mistakes, but he was also a man after God's own heart in how he loved and worshipped and <laughs> cared for others. Shortly after he was appointed king of Israel, we read in 2 Samuel 7 that David wants to build a temple, a house for the Lord. God says through the prophet Nathan that he doesn't need one, and essentially that he will look after Israel regardless of where they are. But then after that, God says this, and we'll pick it up. It's on the screen as well, 2 Samuel 7, 11 to 16. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of the Lord forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, 
I will dis- discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This is the Davidic covenant. Um, and I want you to hold on to those words, specifically that your throne shall be established forever and that the house shall be built under his name. All of a sudden, God promises a kingdom out of the house of David and a king to rule on the throne forever. This is about a thousand years before Christ. If the Israelites weren't already on the lookout for a saviour from death, from a, for a Messiah, for someone who can restore these relationships, they were locked into the search now. The problem is all the people that continued to come through and all the people they would put their hope in continued to fall short. King after king failed and fold. Israel endures heartache after heartache. They lose their land, their temple. Kings like Solomon, he was the wisest man of all time and built a grand temple. Surely he must be the Messiah. But as he grew old, he was enticed by women from foreign lands, marrying dozens of women and worshipping dozens of false gods. It was not to be. But there was a hope that the Israelites continued to hold on to. Uh, King Hezekiah was another. If you haven't heard of him, his story is pretty fascinating. He destroyed false idols across Judah and saved what was king when God saved, Israel's southern kingdom from destruction by the most powerful empire of the time, the Assyrians. When besieged in Jerusalem by this barbaric empire that had just captured and destroyed the neighboring northern kingdom, they just miraculously withdrew. And the, the story is documented in history. It's this siege on Jerusalem. The Assyrians are, are ready to take over the country. And then all of a sudden, overnight, um, thousands of their soldiers die and they disappear. And it's recorded in both Jewish history and Assyrian history. There's, a, there's actually a prism that you can look up called Sennacherib's prison, King Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. And it's written, he writes about all the conquests he made and all these great moments in history that he had as a big, bold king who took over everyone. Um, And he talks about all the cities that he besieged and conquered. And Jerusalem is the only city on that list that he besieged and didn't conquer. And he leaves out that bit at the end that he didn't conquer it. But it's just so cool to see that it's just documented proof of, of a miracle of God um, not letting Israel be taken over and um, history be changed for the worse. So this king, Hezekiah, could he be the hope? Could he be the, the thing that, the person that we were waiting centuries for? Um, nope. He gloated of the wealth that he had to Babylonian scientists and Isaiah, a prophet of the time, prophesied that all that wealth that Hezekiah had shown would be carried away to Babylon, and including his own children. And that all came to pass, and hope was dashed. But there was a hope that the Israelites continued to hold on to. Um, there was Judas Maccabeus, a Jewish icon from in between Malachi and, and Matthew, a priest and a general who, 200 years before Christ, revolted against the empire of the time and led the Jews to freedom. Could he be the saviour? Unfortunately not, he died in battle. But there's a hope, and I'm hoping you get this message, there's a hope that the Israelites continued to hold on to. This theme continued to repeat repeat itself. 
and a question remained that no one could answer. How are we, as a race, meant to return to the restored order of God when we continue to fall into sin, the very thing that kicked us out of the garden? At what stage does this hope, this divine guarantee, at what stage does this hope arrive? We arrive at the New Testament and find out that Joseph, Mary's husband-to-be, was a descendant of David. When Gabriel the angel was sent to Mary, everything feels a little bit different. Here's Luke uh, 1.28-33. Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favoured woman. The Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think of what the angel could mean. Don't be afraid, Mary. The angel told her, For you have found favour with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. In baby Jesus, a hope realized, one not found in the power of a successful and wise king, nor a general on a chariot, but in a baby born to a servant girl, in the Israeli equivalent of Taparu, in a barn. Hope had arrived and it rewrote every script. Well, <laughs> except for the prophecies of Nathan, Elijah, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Daniel, Ezra, Micah, Hosea. <laughs> God had a plan. The thing is, in the eyes of humans, hope had to arrive strong, equipped, privileged, ready to take on the world. But the eyes of humans also saw fit to eat from the fruit, eat fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Grandeur and charm would hardly turn a hopeless situation of sin and death around. God could not use this preconceived notion of a strong Messiah. Jews would be blinded by the power of such an individual, unable to take notice of the humility and sinless nature of the one who would eventually give up everything for us. Imagine if Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a chariot on Palm Sunday and not a donkey. It's not quite right. Like it says in Philippians 2, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges, took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. Baby Jesus had to be distinctively human. His birth, painful and as human as any, heralding the arrival of the king. In him, the gift of grace for all who came before and all who are to come, all of us. And this is where we step into the story. His grace invites all of us into his kingdom. All of us, no matter where you're at. Via God's great grace, we can participate in the kingdom, the original intention he had for us, despite of our broken sinful nature. What's, what once kicked us out of the garden can no longer hold us back. The Apostle Paul puts this better than any in Romans 5. Read along, it's brilliant. Um, and we'll pick it up from Romans 5.15. But there is a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. And the result of God's gracious gift is very different 
from the result of that one man's sin. For Adam's sin led to condemnation, but God's free gift leads to our being made right with God, even though we are guilty of many sins. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness, for all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. And Eugene Peterson's paraphrase in the message in the following verses lays it out even better. And I love how he puts it. Here it is in a nutshell. Just as one person did it wrong and got us all in trouble with sin and death, another person did it right and got us out of it. But more than just getting us out of trouble, he got us into life. One man said no to God and put many people in the wrong. One man said yes to God and put many in the right. All that passing laws did against sin was produce more lawbreakers. But sin didn't and doesn't have a chance in competition with the aggressive forgiveness we call grace. When it's sin versus grace, grace wins hands down. All sin can do is threaten us with death and that's the end of it. Grace because... Grace. I'll say it with meaning. Because God is putting everything together again through the Messiah. Invites us into life. A life that goes on and on and on. A world without end. That is, that's our hope. We hope because we have been promised his return. We hope because we have been promised a day when wars will cease, sickness will end, and death will finish. As sinners, we do not deserve any manifestation of what we hope for. We blew our chance before we ever really had a chance. We don't deserve this promise but for grace. Grace is the bridge. And in, this beautiful, in the beautiful symbol of new life in baby Jesus, hope arrives. An infant, pure. The realisation of the wishes of not just parents but the world. New life that restores, renews, redeems. A chance for things to be made right. And I'll get the band up because we're going to celebrate to finish this Christmas service um, in, in one way that we can in, in praising God. But today, away from the swirling doubt of ancient Israel, away from the kerfuffle of Jerusalem, we can rejoice in hope and sit in the confident expectation that Jesus will return, that he will complete what he began at the dawn of time. So if you're sitting here on the eve of Christmas, unsure of what is to come. Remember that Jesus didn't show up as a knight in shining armor, but you can be certain that he is always working, always moving, raising up new things in gardens most would overlook. This Christmas, know that he sees you, that you can rest in his grace and confidently hope that this world won't stay in its broken state forever. You can trust God Hold on to hope with a vice grip and let his, his perfect grace do the rest. Let's stand and pray. God, thank you for your hope. <laughs> we would be lost without it. Thank you that we can trust you. Thank you that you have a plan that you put in place from the dawn of time. Thank you that you care about us so much to set in motion a, change of, a chain of events that would change the world. Thank you, Lord, for, 
for, for baby Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for Christmas that we can, that we can sit and, and see the symbol of your love, see the symbol of you giving everything for us to, to restore us back to you, Lord. I pray that we can hold on to the hope that you give us in, in Jesus. And I hope and I pray that we can trust and continue to trust that your grace will, will do the rest in our lives, Lord. Thank you, God. In your name we pray.